today, this morning, we've got some just, just, I, 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 this part right here, chapter five to me, um, I'll just say it again. It's one of my favorite parts of the Bible. Um, and, and about almost all of the Bible is, uh, is my favorite parts of the Bible. But I, in particular, I, I love what's going on here and what we can kind of see and what we can infer. A couple things is one is I'll be drinking my uh, passion tea that I got from Rock Java here this morning. So if I start spitting and yelling and slapping my Bible, you'll know that it's because of the passion tea that they served me up this morning. So, but, uh, you know, remember that, that our, our, our young folks are, are working hard to raise some money for, for causes and for things that, that are on their heart to, to serve. And when you go and pick something up at Rock Java, all of, the, all of the donations go to that particular missions project that they have for the month or for however long of a period uh, they've chosen to do that for. So it always, it goes to a great thing. Um, generally, we're all getting up and having some coffee or something in the mornings anyway. Why not uh, wait and, and, and grab a second cup or whatever at Rock Java when you come in the morning? The other thing I'm thinking, too, is that 307 prayer that's happening this week that you saw announced, that's just an opportunity. It's kind of a, it's a statewide thing. Um, uh, this, uh, a guy named Dave Limmer is, is organizing it across the state, and what he's doing is trying to just pull the greater church body within communities together to pray together. So that's what it is. It's, a, it's an open community night of prayer. People will be coming to the church from, from all churches and things like that. But remember, let's remember too, 2 Chronicles 7.14, which reminds God's people that if we want to see change in the land, if we want to see God heal the land that we live in, that it first begins with us, with our own personal repentance and our commitment to prayer together. So it's a powerful night. It's a powerful opportunity. And I want to encourage you to, to turn out and to to come and to pray together. Uh, prayer is the most, ba- it, it, it's the foundational, most important thing that we do. Um, uh, the, there's a saying out there that says this. It says, there are more important things that we can do than pray. But until we pray, there is no more important thing that we can do. So prayer is the foundation by which God really is, is moving in the, on the earth. And it, unfortunately, it's one that we tend to give the least amount of attention to um, as, as, as God's people. And that's just, uh, that's just true. And we need to be committed to that. So, uh, just an encouragement to, to try to come out six o'clock Friday evening and participate and, and be a part of that. We're going to be praying for, um, our community, for our schools, for, for, uh, our nation, for just all kinds of, uh, all kinds of great, uh, subjects and things to pray about. So, uh, Mark chapter 5, beginning in, in verse 1, and we'll be going through verse 20 this morning. So uh, turn your Bible on, get your Bible out, open your Bible, grab a Bible from in the pew from in front of you or the chair, and we'll get started here. One thing I'd like to encourage you in is that um, there's a great app out there. It's called the Blue Letter Bible, and um, it's an app, or you can go to blueletterbible.com online. And you will have at your fingertips concordances, commentaries, interlinear Bibles, all kinds of study aids and helps to help you as you kind of study your Bible and as you grow in that. So just want to encourage you to, to think about that. The Blue Letter Bible, it's a great app. It's just, it just puts everything at your fingertips, a great study tool. Um, think about going there and checking it out. 
In particular, if you end up going after you get it or after you go check it out and you go back to Mark 5, maybe read Matthew Henry's commentary on this chapter and also um, a guy named David Guzik. I drew from those guys as um, part of what um, I'm going to be talking about today. They, uh, some of those guys had some really cool insights for us, and so I'm just going to encourage you to, to go back and read with that. So chapter 5 is this is this problem, and it's kind of one of the struggles that we have, and one of the problems that we have, and regardless of what your faith system or belief system is, is with the problem of evil in this world, that there's a reality of evil within this world that we live in. Um, and, and, and so then we have to look at that, and we have to, we, we have to deal with that. We have to try to, to, to reconcile this idea of, of where does evil come from? What is the source of evil? Um, and, and, and how does evil operate even within the system that we're living in? Um, today. So, so the evil is very problematic to us, and, and the Bible deals with this, and especially right here in this chapter, we're going to really look into this in a deep way, the, um, a reality of de- the demonic realm, about, of demons. Uh, and, and, and a demon simply, biblically, is a fallen angel. It was an angel that, that chose to follow Satan in rebellion against God, um, that, that basically fell and, and went from a place of being an angel into darkness and a demon. So biblically, the, the spiritual realm and the, the nature of evil, the, the reality of demons, the reality of Satan, the reality of hell, and all of the uncomfortable things, this is all a biblical certainty. The, the, the Bible is plain about this. There, there, there's no, we, we, we really, we, when we read the Bible for what it is, it, it's just plain that this is a reality in the world that we live in, that there's a supernatural world, there's a supernatural thing and battle that is going on around us within the world that we live in. Now, we don't always see it, but at times, we, we, maybe the veil gets a little thin and we, we, we get glimpses of different things and we, we realize things. I mean, I, I'm thinking, of, uh, C.S. Lewis had a great um, perspective on this, and he said this. He said, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. So it's this thing that that it's a reality. We need to acknowledge the reality of what it is, of this realm of of evil and evil within that realm. And then, but we also too need to recognize that we don't need to give it too much power. We don't need to think into this. We don't need to get too um, interested or, or drawn into that whole thing. We recognize that greater is He who is in us than He who is in the world, and and that that Jesus is victorious. That He is sovereign over all things. Some of the most evil men recorded in history, and this is that problem of evil that we start to deal with, is like, well, well, where does this come from? Where does this level, this depth of evil and struggle come from? Adolf Hitler. Adolf Hitler's actions led to the deaths of 50 million people. Joseph Stalin, over 20 million people died at his hand. And let me just tell you, too, that as we go through this, I'm going to spare you the details of how people died at these evil men's hand. Vlad the Impaler, or Vlad Dracula, killed 20% of the population of his people. Pol Pot, the founder of Khmer Rouge, executed genocide on his own people and killed over 2 million of them, which was 25% of the population. Heinrich Himmler um, ordered the execution of 6 million Jews. Saddam Hussein was responsible for the killing of over 2 million people. 
Idi Amin tortured and killed over 500,000 Ugandans. Leopold II of Belgium killed over 10 million Congolese as he reigned over Congo. Uh, Kim Il-sung, Kim Jong-il, and Kim Jong-un, that dictatorship has taken the lives of millions and millions of people in North Korea. Mao Zedong, the founder of communism in China, 40 to 70 million people died at his hand. Genghis Khan, his army killed 15 million people. See, it's an interesting thing, isn't it, that, that you hear all the time out there in the world that, um, that, that religion is the cause of, of these wars and problems, right? Except there's an incredible experiment here. Most, a, a, a very large number of these people are communists. And communism is based on what? It's based on the idea that there is no God. It's based on atheism, the idea that there is no God. And we have tens, of hundreds of millions of people that have lost their name, their, their lives, I'm going to say, in the name of atheism or the idea or the concept that there is no God. So certainly, it isn't religion that is the problem. It is something going on. It's both in us, it's around us, and it's over us. James tells us that part of the sin issue that we have is within us, that we can't just blame, we can't just always say the devil made me do it because we're led away and we're enticed by our own desires and they, they drag us away. And it says when we're drug away by that, then it conceives and, and, and sin gives birth to, to death ultimately in our lives. And, and, and then it's also around us, this reality of the spiritual realm that, that is, that is uh, around us. And so uh, that is with us, actually, that is living with us, and it's over us even in this spiritual realm. And so, anyway, we have to deal with this whole issue, and this thing really kind of gets down to the core of, like, what looks really ugly in humanity, like, like the depths of, of the ugliness of what we're capable of and, and who we can kind of uh, turn into. So, let's get into it here. Chapter 5, it says then, beginning with this, it says that they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. Okay, so remember what we've got going on, a little background again. Jesus has now left all of the crowds. There were thousands of people that were showing up to, to be a part of his ministry, to, to hear his teaching, to be touched and to be healed by, uh, by him. Uh, the, the, he's, he's, he's casting out demons. He's doing all of these things, and there's just literally thousands of people. He tells his disciples and some other folks, he says, look, let's get in the boat. We're going to the other side of the lake. They head out to the other side of the lake, him and just a few other boats, met by a major storm, right? Everybody's like, oh, well, you know, don't you care, Jesus, that we're dying, right? We talked about this last week and, and how there was just, there's nobody who cares more who's more intricately interested in your well-being and your welfare than Jesus. There's nobody who's ever given more or done more on our behalf so that we might have life. And so, so they, they, he stands up and he, he demonstrates the reality that he is God in the flesh, and, and, he, and he demonstrates his power over nature and just shuts the whole storm down and just says, peace, you know, be still. And so now we take it up here when they get to the other side. Remember that he told them that they were going to arrive on the other side, and now they've gotten to the other side, and they're in the country of the Gerasenes. Now, Matthew calls it the Gadarenes. And, and, and remember, we're going we're to be going on, on the idea here that, that, that Mark, Mark predates, most likely, the first gospel that's written. For, for whatever reason, Matthew goes, and he wants to clarify 
that it's the Gadarenes. Now, in Chuck Smith's commentary, it says this, a little bit of history and background on those Gadarenes. It says, that, now this, this is on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. It is the area near the beginning of the Golan Heights and Gilead, the, the area where Moses was bringing the people toward the land for their conquest. They had passed over the other side of the Jordan and had gone up in the, in the area through Moab and up in the, to the area of the Ammonites and all, <clears throat> which was this area to be east of the Sea of Galilee. And the tribe of Gad came to Moses and said, look, we are cattlemen, and this is great grazing land and all. We would just as soon have our inheritance here because they had defeated the Ammonite kings and all, and they said, we would just as soon stay here and live. We really don't want, care for an inheritance in the land, and the half-tribe of Manasseh was with them. So, of course, Joshua was upset at their request because he was afraid that their wanting to stay there might discourage the rest of the people from coming in and taking the land. And they said, no, we'll send our troops to fight, but when it's all over, we'd like to come back and settle here. We like this land. And so the tribe of Gab and the half-tribe of Manasseh were given this area to settle, so the people came to be known as the Gad-Darenes, who were living on that side of the Jordan and the Sea of Galilee, and so they came over to the area of the Gadarenes. So just a little background. <clears throat> this is what we've got going. These were people, part of the tribes of, of Israel, who decided not to go after the conquest into and settle in the Holy Land or the, the Promised Land. They, they, they decided they would stay just a little bit outside of it, where things were really good and where things were actually quite comfortable and where their cattle had um, a great living. And so if any of you are ranchers out there, you kind of get that. You're like, yeah, this is good land right here. So here it comes, and Jesus lands on the bank of this shore, and, and, and here he is, and it says, when Jesus stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Remember, Jesus has left the crowds, and he's left the crowds for one guy, we're told here. Now, if we look at Matthew, Matthew says there's two of these guys that are living in this place among the tombs. But if there's two, there's certainly one, and Mark gives emphasis to this one. And, and, and so, so we're, gonna, we're looking into that. And so basically, Jesus has left the crowds to go after this one guy, this one person. Um, He's just proven to us the reality that he's that good shepherd that would leave the 99 and would go and seek after the one, the one who was lost. And this one is living among the tombs. He is cursed and defiled. And no good priest is going to walk into the tombs where he's at because that would then defile them. But you see, Jesus is never worried about what's going to get on him because when Jesus shows up on the scene, it's Jesus that gets on everything else around him. You see what I'm saying? It's not that he's... And so, so Jesus, he, he's, this man is, is, is just in an awful space. He is... Um, 
he's just, he's just living something that lives, looks much closer to death than life. His existence is in these tombs, and, and Jesus has come just for him at this point. And see, no man has answers for this guy. As a matter of fact, they've just, they're done with this guy. They're over him. He's just living in the tombs. Their only answer that they had for him was to try to somehow chain him, somehow contain him, somehow just, um, but, but he even is too strong for that. He continues to just, to just tear the shackles and the chains off, and nobody is able to subdue him. I think sometimes in the world that we live in, that's, there's, there's people out there that are so just consumed and so struggling with the reality of what the enemy has twisted their life into that, that, that we, we're just done with them. We're over it. We have no answers for them. And, and unfortunately, sometimes the church isn't coming forth with the answer because there is an answer for this guy, and it's Jesus. And, and this guy is, is just... On the inside, he, he's in this absolutely wretched place. It's so dark. Listen to him here. It says, night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying and cutting himself with stones. His condition is just misery. He's crying out. He's yelling. He's, he, he's, he's in absolute turmoil of, over the reality of his situation, and he's probably railing against heaven and why even this is happening to him. Why hasn't this happened? Or why, why hasn't, why are things, why is my life looking like this? Imagine the loneliness and the struggle that this man is, is living under. Imagine the pain and the distress. And remember, Jesus, from the other side, amidst the noise of the whole crowds, has heard this guy's voice and has went through the storm to get there. He's cutting himself. He's cutting himself with stones, it says. When we look, into, we look into the Old Testament, we see that Elijah and, and the prophets of Baal have this thing, kind of this contest to see who the reality was, who was God, and who had real power and who had real strength, and who was going to show up at this sacrifice and demonstrate the power of who they were. And if you'll remember, when we get back into that, see the, 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 the priests of Baal were crying out and yelling, and finally they began to cut themselves to demonstrate their loyalty or their, their conviction towards this God that they had. And, and so this man trying to demonstrate the, the reality that he's, he, he, he wants something maybe different or just the, he's, he's cutting himself to show his, um, his, uh, his what? His torment, his, but, but, but he's trying to also show his, um, uh, his faithfulness to this God that doesn't exist by cutting himself. See, what he doesn't realize is that this God is actually going to bleed on his behalf. He doesn't have to bleed on the behalf of God. God is going to bleed on his behalf ultimately, but he's crying out with a loud voice. And listen to what he says. He says this. He cries out and he says, Jesus, son of the most high God, I adjure you by God, do not torment me. Now remember here, this is God's, this is someone who's created in God's image. But what has the enemy done? The enemy has taken what is created in God's image and begun to distort it, has begun to just take it and, and twist it and pervert it. You see, the enemy has no creative capacity. 
The enemy takes the things of God and begins to distort and twist and pervert the things of God. It's the reality of why things in the world that we're living in are under the attack that they're under right now. It's why, it's why things like marriage and family and identity and gender and all of these things are under such confusion in the world today it is because the enemy takes and begins to twist the things of God. It's amazing to me, and, and it should be amazing to you, I think, today, in the world that we're living in and the struggles that we're seeing in the world out there, why is nobody talking about strengthening the family? Why is nobody talking about strengthening the reality of marriages? Because I can promise you the, the greatest amount of pain and difficulty in the world out there comes from the brokenness of the family. And God created the family to be this bond, this, this, this place where it's the foundation of, of society. And as goes the family, so goes the world that we live in. And we're living the reality of that right now. We take things that God made to be beautiful and intended to be beautiful, things like sex, and our culture begins to mishandle it and, and twist it and contort it into things that it really isn't meant to be. And then we begin to suffer the consequences of pushing against what God has said and trying to reject it. You see, you can't break God's laws. You push up against them, and then you suffer the consequences of having pushed up against them, but you can't break them. They cannot be broken. They just are. Here, when the enemy stands up and says this, when he says, Jesus, son of the most high God, I adjure you by God, do not torment me. What he's trying to do there, I guess, I was reading it, it's really interesting that that ancient people back then believed that if they knew the identity and could name their enemy, that they would then hold power over that enemy. And so when he says, Jesus, um, son of the most high God, he is basically trying to assert spiritual authority over Jesus, and he's demanding that Jesus not torment him. Why? Because he knows the reality of who Jesus is. Remember, the book of James tells us this, James 2.19, you believe that God is one, you do well, even the demons believe and shudder, right? So, so it's this idea that, that the demonic realm knows full well who Jesus is, and Jesus, and they're shuddering, and this demon right now, or demons, are shuddering because they know the reality of, of who they're dealing with. And Jesus is telling him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And then Jesus says this. Um, one thing I want to back up to really quick is that it says that this man saw him from afar. And when he saw him from afar, he ran to Jesus and threw himself down before him. I think that that's like the last bit of his humanity. I think that that's just the last little grasp that he had on his humanity. I don't believe ever that the enemy can have it all. He can't have all of us. There's always that place that has the capacity to get back to Jesus and to get before him and to recognize and to acknowledge him and, and, and see him as a way out. And so Jesus is telling him, um, he, he says, don't, don't send me to the abyss because ultimately at the end of this, see, the, the demonic realm doesn't know the day that it's all going to end either. And so he, he's like, maybe this is it and you're, you're going to send me to the pit and then it's going to all be over. And he's saying, you know, don't do that. And he's begging it, which shows 
that who is the one who has authority here? The one who has all authority here is Jesus. The, the demonic realm has no authority. The authority, or there, there's not victory. There's not this place where, where we're wondering who's going to win and who might know. Victory is assured. It's already secured. It's done. And, and all believers today fight from a place of victory, not from a place of defeat, not from wondering if we're going to fall or if it's going to not work out. No, we need to stand in the victory, in the resurrection power of who Jesus is, and we need to begin to proclaim back into the world the reality of what God has said, and we need to be a people who begin to live for the things and align our lives with what God has told us to do so that we and others might experience even the blessing that comes with our obedience. So he's just screaming at him, don't, don't, don't kick me out, don't torment me. And Jesus says this, he's telling him, get out of the man, and Jesus asks him, what is your name? An interesting thing, especially if you think about the idea, too, of the superstition that the one who knew the identity of their enemy had power over them, Jesus is kind of in this situation that to all of them would seem like it shouldn't work the way it's about to work, that the, actually the enemy should have authority over Jesus because he knows his name, and Jesus is saying, what is your name? It would appear that he doesn't know the name of the enemy in this. But it also, too, I think that this is a deeper cry that Jesus is talking to this man, and he's telling him, what is your name? Who are you? Who are you? Do you remember who you are? Do you remember like that who God has made you and I to be? You see, when we get out of this thing, when we get out of step with God, when we begin to live our lives and, and the enemy, we give ground to him and he begins to take because he's come to do one thing, to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And that takes a variety of, of, of actions against us. And it can, it can happen in very subtle ways. But as we begin to, to give room over to the enemy, then we begin to forget who we really are. We begin to forget what our identity truly is and, and who we are and what we were made to be, you see? And, and when we remember like who we are and who God has made us to be, we remember who God is and how precious he holds you and I to be, then we sh that should do something inside of us that says like we don't want this anymore. It's not even that we can't do this or that, it's that we like, we just don't want to. It would, be, it would be like this. It would be like you're sitting out in the, in the alley and you're eating out of a, a dumpster right outside of a five-star restaurant. And the owner of the five-star restaurant comes out and says, look, you know what? I've done great with this restaurant and this restaurant's really blessed me and I, I want to bless you. You know what? Every single day, this restaurant's open 365 days a year. I want you to come and I want you to sit down here, and I want you to eat every meal here. We're going to feed you every single day. And I want you to have the best. And, and, and don't, don't be shy. You order whatever you want to off of the menu. And then for that guy to say, actually, I'd rather just eat out of the dumpster. See, that's what it's like for us when we forget who we are and, and where we're at. And, and, and the enemy is unscrupulous. The enemy is just here to destroy. And, and here the thing is, is that the human body becomes a weapon. It becomes a weapon in the culture around us. It's the weapon that, that all of these evil men that the enemy had, and he had a stronghold in their lives, people like Hitler and Stalin and 
all of these people. And I promise you, we couldn't even take the details of what happened. We can take the statistics. Oh, he killed 50 million people. If you heard how he'd done that and what that really looks like, or somebody like Vlad the Impaler, what that looked like with the reality, we couldn't even stand up to that. But this is the reality of what God has come to change. You see, the human body becomes a weapon in this war. And it's the only place where the enemy, when he can make ground and he can get in that, and he can twist and contort what the image of God is, and he can turn it into something incredibly horrific and terrible. Some of the most beautiful things in, in the world around us, some of the greatest gifts that God has given us are some of the things that have been contorted by the enemy into some of the ugliest things in the culture and the world that we live in today. But make no doubt about it, it's the enemy's intention to kill this man. What is your name? He replied, my name is Legion. Now what's he doing? Now he's referring to a Roman legion. And that is meant to instill fear into those who hear about a Roman legion. We are legion. We are many. A Roman legion was upwards of 5,000 men. Um, and, and so he's telling him that I am an army, that I am organized as an army, that I have a battle plan, and I have strength. And that's, that's the reality. This is why we need God. This is why we need Jesus in our lives is because the enemy truly does have some strength in comparison to us. See, if you're out there and you're trying to fight this battle apart from him, if you're trying to fight the battle apart from the power of Christ, then you're going to lose because he's incredibly good at deceiving humanity. He's been at it a long time. He knows how to work us. He knows where our struggles are at. He knows the places where we don't have wisdom or strength in our lives, and he's, he's on purpose, and he's organized, and he's an army, and he's coming. Remember what, it's, what it tells us in 1 Peter, that, that he, he roams the earth, right, like a roaring lion, seeking whom he might devour. This is the intent of the enemy. My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. He has business in that country. I'm, I'm, I'm not even too sure that, that what we aren't hearing here is that, that part of the demonic realm is assigned possibly places. And, and, and they've spent time and they understand the history and the ins and outs and all of the things that are going on. Make no uh, mistake, they are not omniscient. They don't know all things. But if they stay someplace long enough, they learn about it. And they just use the same old things that have deceived humanity for all of time. My name is Legion. He says, don't send me out of the country. And then a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him saying, send this to the pigs. Let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd numbering about 2,000 rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. See, the, the, the demons didn't want to be disembodied. They said, look, just send us to those pigs over there. And Jesus gave permission. It says, again, he's the one with authority. He gave permission for them to go and do it. And then 2,000 of these pigs rushed to their death over the cliffs and into the sea and are dead. And, and the demons bring the destruction and the death that John 10.10 10 talks about. What they intended to do 
Um, how that worked out or how that played out or what happened, I don't know. I don't know that there were 2,000 demons, but whatever happened, some of the pigs freaked out and started running over the cliff, and then the whole herd went over that, the cliff. But you see, it's kind of an interesting thing because if these people were from Gad and if they were part of the half-tribe of Manasseh, then they were involved in basically what would have been an illegal industry according to the Jewish people. They were raising pigs. You know, the, the other option is maybe there's Gentiles, and, and, and that's how we know that this is a land of, the, of, of Gentiles is because there's pigs. I don't know all of the ins and outs about it, but it's pretty interesting when you think about the history of things that these people, because they stayed just outside of it a little bit, they had allowed things to come into their lives that were really not, that were really forbidden. They had lost track of what God had told them to do and to be, and they were now raising pigs, and Jesus kind of in one fell swoop there, kind of got rid of that industry. Um, there were probably a lot more pigs. It also shows us this. It shows us that Jesus is a whole lot more interested in one life than he is a bunch of resources, physical resources. You know, he, he, he allowed this to happen, and somebody lost a lot of money over that. But um, Jesus is, is, is more interested in the one guy here. It says that the herdsmen then fled, and they told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus, and they saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there. He was clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. They weren't afraid because the pigs had went over the sea. They weren't afraid because they were seeing all of the bodies of the pigs washing up on the shore. They were afraid because they went and they saw this man who had been changed by Jesus. Luke tells us that he was in the tombs and he was unclothed. He was naked. And we see now that he is clothed and he is in his right mind. The picture of clothing or, or, or caring for one and clothing, again, is, is often associated with this deep idea of identity. When, when the prodigal son returns and the father says, put a robe on him, he is clothing him with, with royalty. He is reestablishing him in his proper identity and who he really is. He's a son, not a slave, not a servant. And so we see this man here, and he is clothed, and he is, he is stand, sitting by Jesus and he is in his right mind, and that scared them. That scared them. That scared them more than him running around crazy, screaming and cutting himself with stones and all day and night. That scared them. And it says this. Um, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might go with him or be with him. That's the really scary part of this. The really scary part of this isn't really the guy in the tombs who was running around. The really scary part of this is that they got back and they determined that what they would rather have was their comfort and their place and all of that good grazing and what they were raising, and their industry of pigs, then they would rather have that than that they would have Jesus. That they had probably counted the cost and said, whoa, wait a minute, if we actually came into this deal, it's going to cost us something here. And because of that, they asked him to leave. And what's really scary is that he said, okay, and he got in the boat 
and he headed out back over to the other side. You see, Jesus isn't going to force himself. He doesn't force himself on people when we, when we don't want him. If we want to live on the fringe and we want to live outside of what he's called us to, then, then we, we may live kind of some sort of a comfortable life here, but we'll be missing what it really is all about. And, and, and even in our comfort and, and in our, uh, our comfort in, this, in America here today, I mean, through that, because we'd rather have that, we've watched and we're watching just the culture around us continue to slip further and further and further away. This man who had had an encounter with Jesus, though, he wanted to be with him. Remember when Jesus called his disciples when we were a few chapters back, it was, it was at the, so that they might be with him. But for this guy, he wants to be with Jesus, but Jesus says, Jesus didn't permit him to. He said, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and he began to proclaim in the Decapolis or the 10 cities how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. Jesus had a job for him. He sent him with his testimony into the Decapolis, from where he was kind of from, from where people knew him, where people could understand the reality of, man, we saw this guy here, and now he's here. And everyone marveled at that. It's the same that we see with this story of the woman at the well. She ended up going back to the very people that she was hiding from. How about your testimony? Are you willing, are you sharing the testimony that you have of what Jesus has done in your life? What he saved you from, what he's rescued you from? What, what, what the potential was for me? I know the potential for me was not good. I was headed to a really dark place, and I was going there like really fast. I recognized at a certain time in my life that I needed somebody else to drive the bus I was driving because the one I was, because with me in the control, um, I was going over a cliff. I began to realize that an idiot was running my life. It was me. And I gave my life to Jesus, and he drastically changed my life and the trajectory of my life and the trajectory of the life of my family. And this is what he's to do. You see, there's a bigger picture in this. You see, when we look at this and we see that Jesus left all of the comfort of the crowds and the people and the accolades and all of that, if you can start to understand that this, this kind of paints a, a bigger picture, you see, Jesus left heaven where he was Lord, where he was worshiped, where it was comfortable, where it was good, where it was easy. And he came across and he came through the storm and into our world, and he entered our world. And the reality of this demoniac is that this is what our world looks like. This is what our world looks like. When we look at this guy and we think, oh man, what this crazy guy just running around and cutting himself and doing all this, it's a picture of us. And it's a picture that Jesus came. And despite who we were and where we were at, and, and what evil we had allowed and what evil we had tolerated and the degree of, of, of fallenness that, that the world around us had come, that he came to provide that answer for us. And then he came. He didn't take us right back with him, right? When he saved us and we said, man, I just want to go to heaven right now and just be with you, Jesus. He said, no, I got a job for you. 
You're not going with me right now because I have things for you to do. I want you to take the testimony of what I've done in your life, and I want you to share it with other people. I want you to make a, live, a difference in the world around you that you're living in. I want you to live on purpose for something bigger than yourself. I want you to tell people about it so that others can experience this. And they'll marvel. Remember when he left? When he left, there were a few other boats, it says, that went with him. And we're not given a lot of details about those. Those little boats are kind of, they just kind of drift off into that. We know that there were several boats that went. The question is, is are you on one of those boats? Are you on one of those boats? Are you going with Jesus where he's going, even when it doesn't make sense? Even when it doesn't make sense to leave the crowds and go for one, are you on a boat? Or you're comfortably on the shore, somewhere hanging out, got a big beach umbrella, umbrellas in the drink and all of that. Are we willing to jump into and go on the adventure to go through the storm? Because I promise you it'll be a storm. I promise you it won't be easy. As a matter of fact, if you, if you take the, the challenge, if you take the adventure, it'll be the most difficult thing you do in your whole life because it'll be in contradiction to who you are in the world around you. But it'll be good, and it'll be exciting, and you'll make a difference in the life that we lead. We'll make a difference as a church, because remember this now, what you all do when you leave here is what the church is doing all through the week. Don't look here and say, what is the church doing, and look here and look the building, when the people of God leave this building and go about their lives this week, that is what the church will be doing. Amen? Okay, Lord, thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you for who you are. We thank you that you're the kind of God that we don't have to appease, that we don't have to show our devotion to you through um, marring ourselves or cutting ourselves, but that you came and you bled on our behalf so that we could have life, that you came and paid the, the penalty for sin that we could never pay, that you loved us so much that you pursued us, and then you gave us life. And then not only did you just stop, you didn't just stop there, but you gave us a mission. You gave us purpose. You've given us identity. You've given us mission, and you've given us authority. Lord, may we as your church stand and may we walk this out. May we recognize that the deepest place of our identity isn't in the things around us. It's not, it's not in uh, who, how popular we are in the culture around us. It's not in how much money we have. It's not in any of the temporal things that our true identity is in what is, is first just in, in you, in that we're a child of God that you've purchased and you love us. But it's also too then while we're here and until we are with you forever, that you've given us mission, you've given us purpose in this place. We're not just here for nothing. We're not just here to grow our kingdom. We're here to expand your kingdom. And so, Lord, we just pray that anywhere that we've been wrong in that, anywhere that we've had a misguided perception in that, Lord, we're asking for your forgiveness. We just acknowledge, Lord, that we have allowed ourselves to be caught up by all kinds of other things, that, Lord, we've been distracted, that, that Lord, we have paid, we, we would rather um, sit with a herd of pigs on the outskirts than actually join in. And, 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 Lord, we're asking that you would forgive us, that you would restore us, 
and that you would give us a heart like yours for this world. Help us, Lord, that we would be willing to just uh, go through any storm to see one person find freedom. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.